Hello and welcome back. Today, Tommy and I are going to be discussing How to Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie. This book is split up into eight sections. Part one is Fundamental Facts You Should Know About Worry. Part two is Basic Techniques in Analyzing Worry. Part three is How to Break the Worry Habit Before It Breaks You. Part four is Seven Ways to Cultivate a Mental Attitude That Will Bring You Peace and Happiness. Part five is the perfect way to conquer worry. Part six is how to keep from worrying about criticism. Part seven is six ways to prevent fatigue and worry and keep your energy and spirits high. And part eight is how I conquered worry, a series of testimonials. So Tommy, I'm curious, what did you get out of the first half of this book? So Paul, what I got out of the first half of this book was wisdom entertaining stories, and a new way to look at nonfiction. I say Mm. that because in the preface, he outlines nine strategies to use while reading this book to get the most out of it. And I won't read all of them, but I know that rereading a chapter is something I did for the entirety of the book, as well as on that reread, doing a deeper dive and highlighting the sections I found most valuable. But when it comes to wisdom and storytelling, there were, you know, six or seven different sections that really stood out to me. And I'll I'll give just kind of a an overview and we can kind of dive deeper in. But one chapter was on living in daytight compartments. And to me, what this meant was you want to focus on today. The past is already done and you'll never technically reach tomorrow. It's always today. And if you can focus on the actions you need to take today and not focus on the things outside of your control, something next week, something blah, 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 then you can live a more fulfilled, satisfied life day to day. One important note that he has in that section is not to not be concerned about the future, plan and prepare, but at the same time, focus on the tasks that you have at hand. And that's what living in daytight compartments was to me. That was kind of a deeper synopsis. But other things like how to solve worry problems, problem solving in general, when it comes to business, when it comes to life, the chapter on destroyed by beetles. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's a, uh, a deeper story there. But inevitability, dealing with things that are outside of one's control, and to not saw sawdust. So those were really the things I found in parts one through three that I'd like to touch on. And then all of part four was very engaging. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it is seven ways to cultivate a mental attitude that will bring you peace and happiness. Each of those are incredible chapters on their own. I didn't highlight any of them specifically just because of these other stories that stood out. Yeah, I agree with you on the start that living in day tight compartments the different ways that he goes through and explains how one of the things I highlighted there is life we learn too late is in the living, in the tissue of every day and every hour. I think there are just so many things that were incredibly quotable in this that I could see if someone has a desk or a vision board or something like that to remind them of the life that they're trying to build that you could quite easily slap up on there and say, This is a mantra that I want to think about every single day. I think there were a lot of throughout this whole book, right? I didn't mention this was published in 1948. 
originally. Um, so there are some cultural references that are outdated at this point. Uh, there are some figures that are referred to that, you know, I was, I was reading this book uh, over the holiday with my mom in town and I said, Hey, mom, do you know who this person is? And she says, well, I might, can you give me some more context? And then, you know, it turns out it was a politician in the 1920s. So it, it wasn't someone that you or I would have really any chance of knowing regardless there is historical wisdom throughout that is so, I think, missing in a lot of the books, especially around self-improvement or self-help that we see today. Uh, there was a lot from the Bible. There was a lot from the Stoics uh, and from Tolstoy and Emerson and, and some of those writers that were really influential in the 19th century. So there was so much that I got out of even just that first section of living in date type compartments. Every day is a new life to a wise man was one that really stuck with me. Uh, and, you know, you've heard the anecdotes before, but having it written out in such a compelling way uh, really made it stick, at least to me. Did you have any there where you were really like, wow, I, I want to write that down and keep that with me forever? So, like I said, I, I went through on the second reread and highlighted a ton of things. One of his things in the preface or one of his strategies in the preface was read each chapter twice before you move on. So that was the way I attempted to approach it. One thing I just wanted to point out about the book in general is it's, it is anecdotal stories. Not all of these strategies are going to work for every individual, but seeing that there is a concrete example of a method working to me really honed in on, on the things that I highlighted. I highlighted a lot of the wisdom or strategies and not so much the stories, but talking about it with people, it was the stories that made it concrete. In daytight compartments, I think there's a really cool visual that I highlighted. And I'll read just this short section. I want you to think of your life as an hourglass. There are thousands of grains of sand in the top of the hourglass, and they all pass slowly and evenly through the narrow neck in the middle. So when we start in the morning, there are hundreds of tasks which we feel we must accomplish that day. But if we do not take them one at a time and let them pass through the day slowly and evenly, as do the grains of sand passing through the narrow neck of the hourglass, then we are bound to break our own physical or mental structure. That was, to me, the biggest thing that stood out in live in daytight compartments. And he has visuals like that throughout as well. To end that section, he says, you know, the, the takeaway that we should have is shut the iron doors on the past and the future. Live in the day tight compartments and ask these questions and write down the answers. He says, do I tend to put off living in the present in order to worry about the future or to yearn for some magical rose garden over the horizon? Do I sometimes embitter the present by regretting things that happened in the past? that are over and done with? Do I get up in the morning determined to seize the day to get the utmost out of these 24 hours? Can I get more out of life by living in daytight compartments? When shall I start to do this? Next week? Tomorrow? Today? I appreciate how he ends up those chapters, and I totally agree with you that those visuals are, are compelling and, and makes you want to take action right away. So, Paul, I, I gave my you know biggest highlights are there any of those chapters that really stood out to you or would you like to try and, you know, dive deeper into how to solve worry problems? Well, I would say that chapter one, living in daytight compartments, I got a lot more out of. 
chapter three, I got more out of than chapter two, which was what worry may do to you. And just reading about, you know, like I said, this was published in 1948. And so hearing that back then, before really the technological revolution that has given us constant high-speed internet access, social media, and the rise of anxiety and depression, I would have anticipated worry to be, you know, maybe something people dealt with and, and wanted to find a solution for, but not something that was chronic as an issue in society. They talked to a doctor that says, you know, a quarter of the patients that come in have no real determinable physical illness, but have a sense of emptiness about their lives. Um, it, it really just struck me that, wow, this is something that has been a part of the human condition forever. And if you don't take a specific mindset approach to it, you're never going to solve that problem. In chapter three, what worry may do to you said troubled nerves are caused not by a physical deterioration of the nerves, but by emotions of futility, frustrations, anxiety, worry, fear, defeat, and despair. Plato said that the greatest mistake physicians make is that they attempt to cure the body without attempting to cure the mind. Yet the mind and body are one and should not be treated separately. And yeah, that section was pretty interesting and, and provided a lot of context to me about how the human condition hasn't changed over the course of centuries. It's funny. I had that exact thing highlighted and I'm open to that page currently. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. One other, uh, to just throw it out there, one other part of that that I had highlighted and uh, to those of you that may follow me on Instagram, I put up on my story was uh, relaxation and recreation. This was something that was hanging in a doctor that Dale Carnegie went to's waiting room. It said relaxation, recreation, the most relaxing recreating forces are a healthy religion, sleep, music, and laughter. Have faith in God, learn to sleep well, love good music, see the funny side of life, and health and happiness will be yours. And I, I found that to be so beautiful. And, and one thing that has always been true about me more so recently is I'll listen to three, four, five podcasts a day and not listen to any music. And when I read that and highlighted that, I changed something about my daily habits that brought music into my daily life. Uh, and that was a very positive change. Well, what's really curious about that is I've been feeling a ton happier a lot less worry. I think part of it's reading about it and understanding it, but I've made the same shift uh, where I would be listening to a lot of podcasts, things about the news. Yes, it's important to know what's going on in the world, but to not let that fear cloud your ability to think. And so I've been listening to a ton more music on my drive to and from work. And normally when I would listen to podcasts while going on walks, I've been shifting to, you know, I'll listen to 20 minutes of a podcast and then I'll listen to music and I'll just look and see the beauty and wonder around me. It's kind of insane. It's it's awesome that that shift, you can kind of feel how it changes your life, you know, when, when you make that change. And it's, it's I didn't know that we both made that change. That's really cool. <laughs> uh, one other thing that I'll throw out there as well, just as we kind of wrap up this section one about the fundamental facts you should know about worry. In chapter two, the big takeaway is if you can ask yourself one question and then do something and then do something else, that's all you need to do to take care of worry. So you ask yourself, 
what is the worst that can possibly happen if I can't solve this problem that you're worried about? And then the first action you have to take is accept that worst possibility can happen and accept that right now. And that is much easier said than done. But if you do that, then it gives you the ability to do the next action, which is the best part of this, is you can calmly try to improve upon the worst, which you've already accepted, and see how much better you can make it. And the interesting part about that section, I would say, is just, again, the the anecdotal stories that he tells, one of which is about a salesperson in China during World War II, uh, a Western person that is in charge of, I forget what it was, electronics or something like that. And when World War II breaks out, the Japanese, you know, take over Hong Kong and all of a sudden he knows he's about to go to a prison camp and he knows that all of these terrible things are going to happen. And he has the opportunity to worry himself legitimately to death through his actions. But instead he adopts this mindset, accepts the possibility of his future death and then tries to figure out reasonably and rationally the best way forward, and he doesn't end up dying. Uh, And that, to me, was a rubber-hits-the-road example that hit home from that section. And that's, to me, one of those things that I wanted to point out. Yes, they're anecdotal stories. If you have a life-threatening disease, is this going to save your life? I mean, does it hurt? if, (laughs) If the final result is that you know, you are going to die. And if you accept that, and then you look to how do I make the rest of what I have to live fulfilled? I believe, was that the story of uh, Earl P. Haney? Maybe if you have it written down. There. Sorry, I'm just, <laughs> I'm looking at it now, but he was in a sense dying due to all these worry issues and decided to hop on a boat and travel the world. He had to pump his own stomach because the stomach ulcers were so intense. But he also, while you know, having accepted this, wasn't afraid when, you know, the waves would come crashing down on the ship that he was on. He was able to just enjoy it and look at the beauty around him. That is a a different person and a different story, but that was also a very powerful one. And and yeah, the doctors had (laughs) given him something like, if you have it right there, tell me, but it was three months or six months to live. And after traveling around the world for a year, he got home and was able to continue living his life. The disregard for the worry and moving on from that and deciding that regardless of what happens in the future today, I'm going to live allows that life to regain new energy. And that that was a beautiful thing that we see throughout all the examples in this book. Uh, Another one that happens way later, I think it's in part four, was a bed bound woman in Hawaii when Pearl Harbor happened. That one really stuck out to me, too. She you know, would spend 22 or 23 hours a day in bed. And then when the bombs, you know, were dropped on Pearl Harbor, all of these women and children, these families were being relocated to new places. And she was basically put in charge of manning a telephone that was managing the communication between the sailors and their families to let them know, okay, this is where your family is and let the families know, yes, your husband is alive. And all of a sudden, at first she was doing it in bed and then she was doing it in bed sitting up and then she moved over to to her desk and then she was just doing that for you know 16 17 18 hours a day while that was going on uh and then 
she never went back to that bed. She regained that vitality and that energy for life by learning that serving something outside of yourself eliminates that worry that you have or that whatever it is that's burdening you and saying, I don't need to continue trying to move my life forward. So that, that was a beautiful example too. For sure. That was a beautiful example. And it relates to one of the other strategies for solving worry or, you know, methods for living a good life, which was keeping oneself busy when you're working all the time or pursuing a goal you don't have time to spend worrying. That one I, I give, in a sense, a little bit less credence because sometimes I think overburdening yourself can provide less positive overall. But for people that are essentially just using time or speedrunning life on social media or TikTok, if you actually start doing something, you're not going to be worried about the time being spent or you know lost because of that. Right. And yeah, I think the, the takeaway from one of the chapters, if I think it's chapter six, is keep busy. The worried person must lose himself in action lest he wither in despair. And I think it is a lot harder to decide that we're going to stay busy when we have the magical cube in our pocket that we can pull out at any time and get access to everything in the world. The decision to then not focus on yourself, not focus on your own profile, your own interests, your own things, but instead take action that maybe is of service to others specifically it's almost counterintuitive except for how intuitive it is right <laughs> it's an interesting way to put it i at least that's that's what i think it may not come natural in today's day and age but when you make the decision to do it it is so natural and and you can feel your shoulders loosen up in that process you you can feel your forehead wrinkles go away when you're deciding to serve and anyone that's done any amount of volunteering knows that right if you go and you're ladling out soup at a soup kitchen for a while if you're sorting food at the food bank if you're walking the dogs at the humane society whatever it is you forget yourself a little bit in that act of service and it a hundred percent takes away any anxieties about life you have and uh, I, I again it's such old I, and at one point he says it in this book he says, I'm not trying to teach you anything new at all. I'm just trying to kick you in the shins enough to make you apply it to your life. For sure. So to go back to uh, part two, because we've kind of been jumping around slightly, basic techniques in analyzing worry. There was one chapter, uh, how to eliminate 50% of your business worries, that really stuck out to me because it's something I do at my job almost every day. And we call it, you know, a focused improvement project where we're using the DMAIC process to find, measure, analyze, improve, and control. But the way he puts it in here are, you know, four, four steps. What is the problem? What is the cause of the problem? What are all possible solutions to the problem? And what solution do you suggest? And he breaks it down even further that by writing out and defining what the problem is, you can already see it much clearer. If you don't know what you're trying to fix, how are you supposed to go down to the root cause of it? I found that chapter almost vindicating in the fact that I do a similar thing on a day-to-day -day basis as an engineer. Yeah, and the awesome thing about it is that it's not just engineering that can apply those principles, right? Anyone that includes problem solving in their job 
can follow those steps and almost everyone in their professional environment will come across problems. So the fact that this is a general formula that allows you, it basically teaches you how to think, right? You can think abstractly in your head, but by putting pencil or pen to paper and writing down the problems, writing out the causes of the problems, writing out what you think could solve it, and then making that decision, it allows you to export your brain onto page and then view it in a more objective light. And I think that's something that, again, is very lost, especially in today's technological age, where if there's an email that comes across your desk and it's a problem, most people are going to hit reply and try to solve the problem as they're typing. And that is probably not going to happen well for you every single time. And I, I like Dale Carnegie says uh, he instituted that in his business as a rule. He says, if you're going to come to me with a problem, this is what you have to have done. You have to define the problem. You have to tell me the cause of the problem. You have to tell me the possible solutions and you have to tell me what you suggest to do about it. And he says, now my associates almost never come to me with their problems because they've already figured it out before it, it would come to that. So. Yes, I, I'm glad you felt vindicated by that, though. That's awesome to hear. Are you uh, you ready to go into part three? I would say that I am ready. I'll throw one more quote out from the book from section two, and that is, if a man will devote his time to securing facts in an impartial, objective way, his worries will usually evaporate in the light of knowledge. And that's just a lot of times when there's an issue we come at it from an, a place of emotion. And if we can take the step back and look for all the facts, quite often that anxiety that was building up within us will go away because we aren't looking at it from a place of emotion anymore. We are looking at it as a problem that we are engineers looking to solve. So yes, what do you think about part three, which was how to break the worry habit before it breaks you? What stuck out? So there was one story that really stuck out to me and it's slightly longer, but I kind of want to read it again. Another beautiful visual that resonated a lot with me. So on the slope of Long's peak in Colorado lies the rum of a gigantic tree. Naturalists tell us that it stood for some 400 years. It was a seedling when Columbus landed at San Salvador and half grown when the pilgrims settled at Plymouth during the course of its long life, it was struck by lightning 14 times and the innumerable avalanches and storms of four centuries thundered past it it survived them all in the end however an army of beetles attacked the tree and leveled it to the ground the insects ate their way through the bark and gradually destroyed the inner strength of the tree by their tiny but incessant attacks what this story is talking about and what the overall message from this chapter was was let's not allow ourselves to be upset by small things we should despise and forget remember life is too short to be little he was talking yep. a lot about the big things, the avalanches, the lightning strikes. We can, in general, face with a lot of bravery. But it's when little things prick at us, prick at us, prick at us, that's how it starts to break us down. Yeah, and I've seen that so many times in my own life where a death of a loved one or a cancer diagnosis or a divorce or, or whatever it is, some extremely traumatic event, takes people down for a, a small amount of time and then they manage to live a flourishing life afterwards. Whereas oftentimes you'll see, especially with younger people, just something small that eats away with them to their core. And I think that 
Well, I, I generally agree with you. It's funny, actually. I didn't have the story highlighted, but I had right after it highlighted where he says, don't we manage to somehow survive the rare storms and avalanches and lightning blasts of life only to let our hearts be eaten out by the little beetles of worry, little beetles that could be crushed between a finger and a thumb. So I, I agree with you that that was a prime story that he told and one that is very applicable. I think it's sometimes just hard to recognize the Beatles in your life. You don't think about this little thing eating you from the inside out, but it is. And it's about realizing once you've seen a little bit of that damage that you're not going to put up with any more of it, that every single Beatle you come across, you're going to crush. One thing it reminds me of is a video I watched by Ryan Holiday, who is an author and a speaker on stoicism. And he put together a list of 10, 20 rules to live by. And one of the rules was don't complain. And the way I have attempted to do this in my own life is by writing down my complaints in the journal, by at least not speaking them out loud. As I've continued to journal, have actually found myself complaining even less and less. It no longer needs to be something I think about. And when I'm thinking about the interactions I have and some of the conversations I have with friends and family, it seems that we sometimes get caught up on, you know, these little things that are very insignificant, but seem to spurn some anger or hatred within our hearts. And to me, if you can resonate with this story and try and forgive and forget these little things, it'll help you over time. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't follow Ryan Holiday, but I've seen a lot of his content. And what stuck out to me actually as I was reading this was how much Dale Carnegie borrows from the Stoics, whether it's Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus. Uh, he's constantly bringing them up and, and putting in quotes from them about how they dealt with life and, well, specifically worry. And so I, I think it's very apt that you would bring up, you know, uh, an expert on stoicism. I hope that one day we can review one of his books. I'd love to. That'd be fun. I think I think that would be quite enjoyable. The stoicism philosophy is one that intrigues me by far more than almost any other philosophy that I've read about. I saw a meme recently of a guy comes across one, you know, book or podcast on stoicism he says, oh, okay, I'm going to make this my whole personality now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so true. I feel that, you know, after watching one video, I was like, oh, my God, all the wisdom's right there. <laughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up was just the law of averages. Did, yeah. Did, did you find that part to be enlightening at all? <laughs> Not only enlightening, but I used it the day I read it. My boss was talking about training that we ought to do for potentially an armed gunman entering the, you know, the, my plant. Uh, and yes. well, last night I was reading about the law of averages. Do we really need to spend hundreds of hours between all the different associates in training for that? Or do we look at the law of averages and adjust what the plan is? Right. I, I don't necessarily mean that we shouldn't be prepared for the worst case scenario, but when it comes to the law of averages and if we look at the actual statistics of how often that happens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in hours and time spent 
is that really what we should be focusing on? Uh, one comment I was going to make is I don't think HR cares about the law of averages, <laughs> believe it or not. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. And to throw another human factors curveball into it, think about if you have, I don't know how many people work at your facility, but just let's say 2,500. If you have 2,500 people that spend an hour of their work day learning about preparing and running a drill for an active shooter scenario, how many of them have now added a stress and worry into their day-to-day life that actually negatively impacts their job performance? Because maybe it's only when they pass by that broom cupboard that they're supposed to hide in during the drill that they think about it, but they are going to think about it and that is going to create some anxiety and that is going to raise their blood pressure. And it's just a thought to consider when you're looking at the law of averages like that, there are always those secondary and tertiary consequences of any policy decision. And so, you know, that's what just came to mind when when you brought that up. But what's crazy is that actually reminds me of 13 Reasons Why. Uh, I think it was one of the later seasons. They did a drill without any of the kids knowing that it was fake of an armed gunman on the premises. And the kids were pissed about it. The kids were like so angry and upset and as they should be because to be put in that situation where they didn't even know it was fake and have that anxiety and PTSD of thinking that a situation like that was really occurring. So I, I think it just brings up a good point that we ought to look at the secondary and tertiary, not issues, but actions. Consequences. Consequences. That's a great word. That's the word I was thinking of to play the opponent to that argument, right? If you don't want to instill any anxiety, then you never run the fire drill and then the kid dies in the fire because he's in the bathroom and has no idea where to go, right? Same thing with active shooter drill. Sure, you can tell them ahead of time, but then they don't prepare their body for an actual anxiety-provoking incident, which is what it would be if it were an active shooter scenario in for, real for life. Sure. For so, sure. There's the pros and cons of all of it, but it's trade-offs all the way down. Trade-offs. Exactly. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. That was basically what an entire one of the chapters was about the law that will outlaw many of your worries. And I've definitely used it plenty of times. I don't really have a fear of heights, but I have the call of the void. If you're familiar with what that is. And quite often when I'm on an airplane, there'll be just the moment of looking down 30,000 feet and going, wow, like, there's no reason that humans should be able to have this view. <laughs> and when you have that moment of possible anxiety, it's, it's really just nice to be able to fall back and say, you're more likely to die in a car accident than you are in an airplane. Law of averages says this plane's going to be fine. I need to stop worrying even when there's turbulence, even when, you know, we're going through a thunderstorm, whatever it is. So I thought that it's again, something that I knew already, but just reading about it and learning about how other people have applied it successfully to their life. Uh, helped a lot. It actually is a perfect segue into cooperating with the inevitable. So one story that resonated with me was this dock worker who was loading TNT onto a barge and he was worried the entire time and he thought about it and look, so you are blown up. So what? You will never know the difference. It'll be an easy way to die much better than dying by cancer. Don't be a fool. You can't expect to live forever. You've got to do this job or be shot. So you might as well like it. So (laughs) I thought that was really an interesting thing. And kind of the way I look at flights, 
if the plane's going down, I might as well enjoy it, I guess. There's no need to be worried about a plane going down. One, you know, law of averages, and two, if it is, is there really anything I can do to control those circumstances? No. I'm going to take that risk because I like to be able to travel to friends and family, travel on vacations. That's a risk I'm willing to take. Here's a, a little bit of a segue as well. One of my favorite parts from this chapter, what I highlighted was an old rhyme, a mother goose rhyme. For every ailment under the sun, there is a remedy or there is none. If there be one, try and find it. If there be none, never mind it. And so your example of flying or my example of flying that you then elaborated on a little bit reminds me that, okay, if I want to go to Hawaii, I'm not going to charter a boat right? But when people had a significant fear in their lives, a famous example is John Madden. He would drive a bus everywhere he would go. And he would do, I think it was Monday night football or Thursday night football, one of them every single week in all the different stadiums across the United States. And he would have a bus that he basically lived on during football season. And so you might say, okay, there's really, you know, if you're going to work this way, John, you don't really have an option. Just get over it. But if you're going to cooperate with the inevitable, inevitable part of that is saying, is this inevitable? If I put on my thinking cap, can I come up with another solution that allows me to mitigate this? So if you really don't like flying, figure out where you can charter boats, figure out where, where you can rent, you know, vehicles in order to get where you want to go. I found that section to just have a lot of deeper truth in there as well about the inevitable. There was another line from Epictetus who says, there is only one way to happiness, and that is to cease worrying about the things which are beyond the power of our will. And, you know, that kind of encapsulates it perfectly. I felt that the, you know, final words that Dale Carnegie put in this chapter really ringed home. I can't remember what the, the prayer's name is. You might understand this, or you might know what it's called. And it's, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I've always known that as the serenity prayer. I don't serenity know prayer. That, that sounds right. That sounds yeah. right. Uh, but that is one that I have heard and prayed throughout my life. And I think that's one thing that kind of struck me every single time, whether it was just a quote from one of the Gospels or just a, a prayer that's in the Christian tradition. It's amazing to see, I mean, in the very first section, right, the, the first chapter, he says, you know, in the opening paragraphs, as was written long ago, as Jesus told us, give us this day our daily bread. And that tells you, do not worry about tomorrow. Yesterday's in the past. It can't change. But give us what we need for today. And, and so, yes, that prayer struck me. And, and his the way that he sets it up is awesome, too. Here it is summed up in 27 words, words that you and I ought to paste in our bathroom mirror so that each time we wash our faces, we could also wash away the worries of our minds. This priceless prayer was written by Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr, something German, I'm not sure. And uh, regardless, yes, that was one of my favorite parts of the entire book, I'd say, is finishing up that chapter, how it puts a bow on it. For sure. I had one final chapter in part three, but was there anything else that stuck out to you? Nope, go ahead. So the final chapter that I really, really loved and enjoyed was Don't Try to Saw Sawdust. And he's he's got another, you know, beautiful story in here about a teacher 
who taught the kids, I think it was in health class or something to that. And it was, you know, they all came in, sat down and up at the front of the class, there was a glass of milk. And once everybody was seated, he started the class by kicking over the spilled milk and saying, don't cry over spilled milk. And he told them the milk is gone. You can see it's down the drain and all the fussing and hair pulling in the world won't bring back a drop of it. With a little thought and prevention, that milk might have been saved, but it's too late now. All we can do is write it off, forget it, and go on to the next thing. And this idea of not trying to saw sawdust is accept the things in the past. Don't worry about them. Like he said, maybe learn from them. But at the same time, there's no sense in, in worrying over something that's already done. Yeah, I, the s- section there, and one thing I highlighted was but I also know that these hackneyed proverbs contain the very essence of the distilled wisdom of ages. (laughs) And that was something that stuck out to me is like, how many of those have we heard that we just say, oh, that's just an old saying and kind of dismiss it. Like they aren't old sayings for a very, very valid reason. (laughs) Well, the thing about an old saying is it's only persisted because it's been repeated over and over and over and over. Right. Right. Like it's only old and a saying that we know because it's found some sort of use in people's lives that it was worth sharing. Ah, and yes, here is the section I I mentioned earlier, but I'll read it to us now. However, knowledge isn't power until it is applied. And the purpose of this book is not to tell you something new. The purpose of this book is to remind you of what you already know and kick you in the shins and inspire you to do something about applying it. So uh, again, right, you've heard, don't cry over spilled milk. But if something in your past at all is still nagging away at you and and taking away some of your energy, then you haven't applied it. So figure out how you're going to apply it. So would you like to move on to part four, seven ways to cultivate a mental attitude that will bring you peace and happiness? Yes. And go ahead with your favorite interesting part. I do have one or two parts of eight words that can transform your life that I'd talk about, but I'm interested in what you found. I did a lot of highlighting during this entire section, but looking at part four in a nutshell, which is really cool, he puts together the main points all together on a single page. So if you end up getting this book, all you really have to do after you've read it is put a little bookmark in each of those sections. And whether you're trying to conquer worry uh, through a strategy of problem solving or trying to make yourself happier, you can just go and take a look at those pages. I, I liked rule four, and it was count your blessings, not your troubles. Mm-hmm. And to me, what that meant was be grateful for the things that you have and don't focus on the negatives. It can always be worse. And yeah. you should be grateful for everything that you have and focus on those the gratitude. And if you focus on the gratitude you won't be worrying or scared or sad about the things that trouble you. Right. One of the quotes that stuck out to me was I had the blues because I had no shoes until upon the street, I met a man who had no feet. And so starting with that gratitude was, was really big for me. Like you said, you you've been journaling and including your complaints in the journal. One of the biggest things that I do is always start with the, gratitude and my thankfulness in my journals. And I find that then whatever I'm writing about after my gratitude 
is a lot more light spirited and seems to actually get me somewhere rather than bickering at myself. Right. So I found that to be very true. And I, I'm glad that stuck out to you as well. Counting your blessings. If it's okay, this is probably going to be the longest direct thing that I quote, but the end of the first chapter of this section is eight words that can transform your life. This was just one of the coolest parts to me. And so it's, it's very long, but I'm going to read it. This is 10 things that he tells you to do just for today. Number one, just for today, I'll be happy. This assumes that what Abraham Lincoln said is true, that most folks are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. Happiness is from within, not a matter of externals. Two, just for today, I will try to adjust myself to what is and not try to adjust everything to my own desires. I will take my family, my business, and my luck as they come and fit myself to them. Number three, just for today, I will take care of my body. I will exercise it, care for it, nourish it, not abuse it or, or neglect it so that it will be a perfect machine for my bidding. Just for today, I will try to strengthen my mind. I will learn something useful. I will not be a mental loafer. I will read something that requires effort, thought, and concentration. Number five, just for today, I will exercise my soul in three ways. I will do somebody a good turn and not get found out. I will do at least two things I don't want to do, as William James suggests, just for exercise. Number six, just for today, I will be agreeable. I will look as well as I can, dress as becomingly as possible, talk low, act courteous, be liberal with praise, criticize not at all, nor find fault with anything and try not to regulate nor improve anyone. Number seven, just for today, I will try to live through this day only, not tackle my whole life problem at once. I can do things for 12 hours that would appall me if I had to keep them up for a lifetime. Number eight, just for today, I will have a program. I will write down what I expect to do every hour. I may not follow it exactly, but I will have it. It will eliminate two pests, hurrying and indecision. Number nine, just for today, I will have a quiet half hour all by myself and relax. In this half hour, sometimes I will think of God so as to get a little more perspective into my life. Number 10, just for today, I will be unafraid. Especially, I will not be afraid to be happy, to enjoy what is beautiful, to love, and to believe that those I love, love me. And so he finishes that off by saying, think and act cheerfully and you will be cheerful. And that section kind of hit me like a ton of bricks just with, I think at different times in my life, I've tried to apply each of those to some varying degree on saying, this is what I'm going to do today. Putting it all together at once is so hard, especially the part where I'm going to write down what I expect to do every hour. That just gives you the level of accountability that then you can look back at your day and say, I was a failure because I only hit you know, six out of the 12 hours of what I expected to do. But I, I think it really does, especially that last part, just for today, I will be unafraid, especially I will not be afraid to be happy, to enjoy what is beautiful, to love, and to believe that those I love, love me. If you have that as a mantra that you think about and choose every single day, I think you end up living such a beautiful life. This chapter to me was incredible. The idea that by just even pretending to be cheerful, it's kind of the not being able to do two things at once, multitask. If you focus on even just pretending to be cheerful, it almost forces you into being cheerful. He, you know, addresses this with a few different stories. None that I, you know, will read through this entire time, but the just for today, it takes it back to daytight compartments too. It's focusing on doing it today. And 
I forget where it's written, if it's, you know, in this chapter or if it's in another one. It might have been in Daytight Compartments where he talks about if you had to think about all the things you had to do in a year, it would overwhelm you, stress you, get you confused at where to even start. But I think when you label it just for today, it makes it manageable. And I'm curious, Paul, out of these 10, have you found yourself doing any recently? trying to stick to any one of those yes multiple of them but i'd say the one that i've been most successful in thinking about applying and adopting was number two just for today i will try to adjust myself to what is and not try to adjust everything to my own desires i'll take my family my business and my luck as they come and fit myself to them so you know my job as a salesperson can have a lot of frustration right if i'm making 60 calls in a day there's a good chance that I have 60 unproductive calls in that day. Maybe it'll have a good day and I'll have five very productive calls throughout that time. But for the most part, it's rare if I'm doing better than a 90% fail rate. So being able to accept that, take it as it comes and not necessarily move on, but just internalize that that doesn't represent my success or failure as a person, just the situation that I'm dealing with right now, that has been, I won't say easy, but it's been fruitful for me to adopt. What about you? Well, just to point it out, number seven, I can do things for 12 hours that would appall me if I had to keep them up for a lifetime. So it's, that's, that's where it was. It was in what you had just read. Oh, uh, But it, it, I, I don't know. It's funny that we both, I guess, missed that. But I would say that I've been actively doing three and eight quite a lot recently. One, you know, taking care of my body, exercising it, not abusing it or neglecting it. I know just today I had, you know, with eight written out that I was going to try and run a 5k today. But at the same time, I started on my run and felt that my knees were kind of in pain. Mm -hmm. And I allowed myself that forgiveness to instead of running the 5k to do kind of a walk run back and forth, actually do some walking backwards in order to try and help strengthen my knees. And by just doing that, yes, it was a slight change to the plan, but I still was able to use that time fruitfully and to take care of my body. That's awesome. So you said number eight, that was one of the ones that I would have found hardest to adopt. You're doing what you can to assign yourself what you're doing every single hour? So I, I guess I've shifted it in some way, right? Like I, I make a plan for the day and that includes the habits that I want to get done every day. And at the same time, it also is those, you know, top three to top five items that mm -hmm. are kind of outside of habits uh, that I've been doing. Okay. So, I guess I wouldn't say that I'm doing it hour by hour, but I know my morning routine is wake up at four, get in the shower, brush my teeth, make my coffee. I'm going to read my 10 nonfiction pages. I'm going to sit and do my 30 minutes of fiction reading, and then I'm going to journal for 15 minutes. And then that leaves me at 545 with 15 minutes to get prepared for work prior to leaving at 6 a.m. So wow. I've been following that routine and it just allows me to be awake, to be mentally aware as I'm driving into work, to feel fulfilled and that I have had success in just the two hours that I've been awake. 
Yeah. That's, and so that's so big. It, it may not be every hour just because, you know, at my job, there's a lot of quote unquote firefighting where a problem comes and we got to figure it out. But I would say that I'm, I'm really trying to structure my mornings and evenings into places where I know what I'm going to be working on, what I'm going to be doing. Well, and if you just say, you know, from six to four or whatever it is, you are what you're assigning yourself that hour is work, then whatever the work looks like, you know, that's what you're going to be doing. So For sure. That's that's awesome to hear. I think that is going to really set you up for success. One other quote that I want to leave our listeners with from this chapter that stuck out to me was action seems to follow feeling, but really action and feeling go together. And by regulating the action, which is under the more direct control of the will, we can indirectly regulate the feeling, which is not. One of my favorite studies about this was, I don't know if it was a study, but basically the reality is if you smile, you get happier. If you decide that, okay, I'm going to set an alarm on my phone and every hour it's going to ding and remind me to smile. And so when you do that, you smile really intentionally for 15 seconds you are going to live a happier life than if you go through your whole work day without smiling that whole time. Because when you smile, you're happy and your body thinks when you're smiling, you're happy and it releases those endorphins and it lets you get a little bit back there. So it's a very anecdotal example, but it's very true. And all the fitness influencers kind of harp on that as well about, oh, it's all about discipline. It's all about, it doesn't matter about motivation. It's all about discipline. The reality is you're in control of your own life. And if you have feelings of sadness, depression, anxiety that are more chronic, there are immediate, simple actions that you can take to give yourself a better chance in that fight. Uh, and that's one of the things that that really stuck out to me in, in this chapter and in this book in general. Yeah. And like you said, in general, right, like this book gives the stories, and then it gives the actionable advice. To me, it's almost a, it's a combination of seven habits of highly effective people in that it gives stories and reasons in order to follow these things. And then also atomic habits where it's the actionable advice. And that's what I've really enjoyed about it, that it gives you a ton of ways to try and conquer worry, to overcome things. And I truly believe that, you know, not every method or prescription is going to work for every individual. So by having a book, 280 pages of different ways that people can use these methods, it allows an individual to, you know, try something. Hey, this didn't work. Let me move on to something else. Let me try something else. And I think that's why it's an invaluable book. You know, we're getting close to an hour here. So I want to be respectful of our listeners time there are a couple more highlights that are worth mentioning for me but what else was big for you so i found this to be a really important chapter especially in our current day and age where instagram and twitter and social media in general influence the way young minds think they should be acting and this chapter was find yourself and be yourself. And when it comes to jobs, Paul Boynton was quoted as the biggest mistake people make in applying for jobs is not being themselves. 
instead of taking their hair down and being completely frank, they often try and give you the answers they think you want, but it doesn't work because nobody wants a phony. Nobody want, ever wants a counterfeit coin. And this should resonate with our entire generation in the fact that, you know, are we trying to be Kim Kardashian? Are we trying to be Timothy Chalamet? Are we just looking at these celebrities and turning ourselves into these things? Because these ideals or these picturesque people on these platforms, in a sense, are these phonies and are these fakes? Not to say that these individuals are, but just the representation they put out there online is. Mm -hmm. And if you can understand that each individual has different strengths, weaknesses, and you can understand that you yourself have only things that you can do, only things that you know you can put out there. By knowing that, it one gives you know a sense of I am important just as an individual, and it also allows you to be who you are. And I think by being who you are, you push away the worry of different people trying to put things on you or label you as this or as that. Yeah, my favorite part in that section was you are something new in this world. Be glad of it. Make the most of what nature gave you. In the last analysis, all art is autobiographical. You can sing only what you are. You can paint only what you are. You must be what your experiences, your environment, and your heredity have made you. For better or worse, you must cultivate your own little garden. For better or worse, you must play your own little instrument in the orchestra of life. I thought that was quite beautiful and it reminds us all of our uniqueness and individuality and that we all have something to offer. We just have to discover and, you know, that's kind of the process of adulthood is discovering what it is we have to offer. And that can be really hard and it can be a lot easier to just look at someone else and say, mm, I like that person. I, I think that I should just be them. But you can't be them. You have to be you. 100%. I think people aren't told that message enough and fall into these traps of I have to look a certain way or I have to be a certain way because this is what my you know school culture tells me or this is what my peers tell me. And I think a lot of it is cultural bullshit. Just because you are who you are now doesn't mean you can't change in certain ways. But by knowing inherently that only you are you, and like you said, have, have different strengths and weaknesses and try and use those to your advantage. I just think it's a message that needs to be put out there. Right. And cultivate them. You know, we all have our individuality, our strengths and weaknesses. But, you know, if you pretend it's a chemical formula, that chemical formula is unique and you are built for something awesome. You have to cultivate those strengths and minimize those weaknesses in order to do it, though. And I, I don't think that's preached enough. I think there's a lot of cookie cutter. If you're good at football, basketball or baseball, great. You get to be a sports guy or, or, or track. Sure. Otherwise, athletics aren't for you. And it's like, that's not true. Everyone has something to do physically and everyone has something to do uh, mentally and, and everyone has a responsibility to those around them emotionally. Uh, and I, I just don't think that's you know pushed enough, unfortunately. 100 percent. Uh, so like you said, we're we're kind of nearing the end. This chapter, you know, really hit me hard. And just understanding some of the times where I've felt depressed and knowing people who have clinical depression was how to cure depression in 14 days. Mm -hmm. And I, I won't go through all the stories, but 
I did learn uh, a new word, melancholia, uh, <laughs> which is a, which is I guess the '40s word for depression. <laughs> sure. uh, but this doctor talked about different ways that you can try and help people with depression. So I found this one valuable in you know trying to help others around me that show these symptoms and also just good advice for individuals with depression. And uh, I, I won't go on too long, but I'll just read the what the rule is, rule seven. Forget yourself by becoming interested in others. Every day, do a good deed that will put a smile of joy on someone's face. And to me, the idea behind this was, if you focus on others, you tend to not worry about your own issues. Right. And you know, I, I think we may have mentioned this even earlier in our discussion, but I just felt that this was profound knowledge that I think we inherently know, but maybe don't know the usefulness in it. Yeah. And I think it's one of those that, again, it may be generational knowledge that our grandparents and even parents might have known, but we have a very individualistic culture that says you need to be out for you. You need to be out for personal gain. You need to be out for power, fame, recognition, money, whatever it is. And serving others doesn't get you those things, but serving others gets you fulfillment and happiness is, is the reality of the situation. So it's funny with this chapter, because he also talks about even if you don't care about helping others, do it as a selfish act, right? Because it, because it can bring you joy. So by even just focusing on others and trying to make them happy, do it as a selfish act if if you don't believe you know some of the stories or words that were were talked about. One message I would give is give it a try. And like I said before, maybe it doesn't work, but what's the harm in trying if you are in a depressed state? Right. And I like how he addresses atheists directly here because throughout, as we've mentioned, he quotes Jesus, quotes the Bible. And he says, some people who read this chapter are going to say, all this talk about getting interested in others is a lot of damn nonsense, sheer religious pap. None of that's for me. I'm going to put my money in my purse. I'm going to grab all I can, grab it now, and to hell with the other dumb clucks. And he says, well, if that's your opinion, let's turn to one of the more famous atheist intellectuals. Let's take the late A.E. Hausman, professor of Cambridge University and one of the most distinguished scholars of his generation. In 1936, he gave the address at Cambridge University on the name and nurture of poetry. In that address, he declared that the greatest truth ever uttered and the most profound moral discovery of all time were these words of Jesus. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. The act of serving others is how you actually gain your own life. And I've watched plenty of really wonderful people in my life live that way and find it to be so true. And when you meet those people, they are the most energetic and the most loving, and they have the best energy of anyone you'll ever meet. Yeah, quite profound insight. Yep. So that is the end of section four, which brings us about halfway through the book. But we have used up this hour, so it looks like that's about all we're going to do. Maybe in the future we can get part two out there. We do need to chug along with the content we have planned, unfortunately. But, Tommy, before we go, this is book number six that we are reviewing together that both of us have read. I'm curious, what do you rate this out of ten? 
it's very difficult that I put man search for meaning <laughs> at a 9.9 because. Uh, Do you want to adjust yeah. that? Should we push it down to it? You don't even have anything else in the nines. Like we could just make that a nine and yeah, give you a okay, whole bunch let's, of room. Let, let's let's move that down to a nine. Uh, again, a lot <laughs> of that profound insight, you know, is also found in here. Yep. And uh, I mean, a nine nine point five. We just talked about the first half of the book, and you know, having read not all of the second half, but parts of it, there is just so much wisdom and stories and anecdotes. And I really resonate with stories and, you know, I, I think we all do, right? Like I think we talked about in the past that the hero's journey is kind of what is inside each of us. And, you know, we, we all think we're the main character of our own story. Mm-hmm. And by reading other stories, I think it can inspire us. And by putting wisdom attached to these stories, methods that it, at least anecdotally have worked, and, you know, not to just say he only uses anecdotes, there's statistics in here that we didn't really touch on too much, but it's an incredible, incredible read and uh, has actually inspired me for uh, a few Christmas present ideas. Oh, well, hopefully in a future podcast, we can look back at, on the books that we've read and, and discuss further. And, and maybe you can tell us how that Christmas present turned out. I think that's that that would be fun. I'm going to rate this. So looking at my list, I had a man search for meaning at a 9.1, which is funny because I'm going to leave it at that because <laughs> I left myself the room. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I agree that I think this is my favorite book that we've read together. And I'm going to just to be difficult. I'm going to give it a <laughs> 9.55. Okay. Okay. I mean, I've, I've done it to you in the past. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> the 8.23 on our first, uh, <laughs> that's what got me. So, uh, we all appreciate you listening and hope you got something from this. If you did, we really appreciate the shares that, as you send us out. Paul, one other thing that we're forgetting, uh, Uh-oh. do we, do we want to announce our next book? Yeah. Uh, next up will be Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. We appreciate the listen, like I said, and feel free to follow along. If you are listening to this right now, that means Extreme Ownership has not come out yet. So buy the book, read it in the next two weeks, and then you can be a part of the discussion as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening to this Brace podcast. We ask you to follow us on Instagram at brace.22. Paul's Twitter is at Paul from Brace. And be sure to email us at brace22 at protonmail.com. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you are listening and send to a friend if you found value in this discussion. Thanks. We appreciate it.